Welcome to Queer by Candlelight, hosted by Elizabeth Crane and Dahlia Kumar. Welcome to this episode of Queer by Candlelight. I'm Elizabeth Crane, and my eyes have faded away because I forgot who I am. And I'm Dahlia Kumar, and right now I'm looking into a mirror and there's a man with glasses behind me. Today we're going to be discussing the 2020 Netflix series The Haunting of Bly Manor. It is a one-season television series of nine episodes created by Mike Flanagan and based on Henry James's 1898 novella The Turn of the Screw. The Haunting of Bly Manor stars Victoria Pedretti as Danny Clayton along with the ensemble cast. It's also notable that a lot of these actors overlap with Mike Flanagan's previous TV series, The Haunting of Hill House, in which people like Victoria Pedretti played Nell, Oliver Jackson Cohen played Luke. There are several crossovers from those two series. And today we decided to talk about this one because it focuses more on lesbian themes, although it is notable that both TV series have prominent lesbian characters that I personally really love. So we're going to start with a plot summary, but unlike most of our movie plot summaries, we're just going to do a quick little run through because it is nine episodes and that would be way too long to actually go through. So in episode one, The Great Good Place, directed and written by Mike Flanagan, the story starts with a framing device where we see an older woman at a rehearsal dinner for a wedding. We don't learn any of the characters at this wedding's name, but we see that she has water filling her sink and bathtub in her hotel room. She then offers to tell the rehearsal guests a ghost story. And it is worth noting that this opening scene is extremely similar to the Henry James novella source material. We then go back in time through this framing device to 1987, where we're introduced to our main character, Danny Clayton, who's going to a job interview with Henry Wingrave to try to become an au pair. She gets the job and goes to Bly Manor, where she is greeted by her new charges, Flora and Miles. They introduce themselves to her and are fairly kind, and Miles gives Danny a hair clip and mentions that it belongs to the previous governess, Rebecca Jessel, who died on the property. Here we start to see the ghost themes. Danny puts the kids to bed and goes to make tea in the middle of the night despite a warning from the kids to never go in the house after dark. This scene is definitely a riff of the Victorian woman in a nightgown that the original novella uses, but it's not quite as Victorian. She's wearing a pretty modern nightgown, although who really wears nightgowns anymore? (laughs) While she's making tea, nothing really happens, but the audience sees ghosts stalk behind her throughout. The next day, Danny sees a man on the parapets outside of the house. She tries to wave friendly at him, but he doesn't acknowledge her. The other main characters that are employees at this house are introduced, which are Owen the cook, Hannah the housekeeper, and Jamie the gardener. Danny asks the group about the man on the parapet, but no one is able to give her any information. She sees a light on at the chapel, and finds Hannah, who we learn is very religious, and Hannah tells Danny that she needs to be understanding of the eccentricities of the kids because the children have seen so much death. She explains that the children's parents have died, as well as the previous governess, Rebecca. That night, when Danny puts Flora to bed, the two children manage to lock Danny into the closet in her room. She's panicking and sees a figure with glasses on in the mirror behind her, which make her have a panic attack or something similar. The kids leave her in the closet for a very long time, but eventually do let her out, and when she's let out, she sees muddy footprints, apparently indicating that while she was locked in the closet, the children went outside and into the closed-off wing of the house where their parents used to live. In episode two, The Pupil, directed by Ciara and Foy and written by James Flanagan. Hannah cleans up the muddy footprints and mentions that she often sees these muddy footprints. And while that's happening, Miles also throws one of Flora's dolls down 
the trash chute, which Danny goes to retrieve. When she goes downstairs, she sees that the doll is sitting upright. Kind of creepy. And as she leaves, the audience sees that there's a pile of larger dolls in the corner, and one of the dolls' head moves to look at Danny. We then go to a flashback to six months earlier, where Miles is at a boarding school. This is very recent after both of his parents died and he receives a letter from home. After receiving the letter, Miles then climbs a tree and then he falls, breaking his wrist. He claims that he fell and didn't jump. Friends claim that they saw otherwise. Then Miles also gets in a fight with one of his friends and almost chokes him. Miles also kills the teacher's pet bird and is expelled finally having crossed the line and refusing to apologize or explain himself. It is then revealed that Miles' letter from home started this chain reaction as Flora told him to come home. We then go back to the present day and Flora puts on the pair of broken glasses that Danny keeps, which causes Danny to hyperventilate. But then Jamie cheers her up, cute, <laughs> um, it makes her feel better after she sees Danny crying. Miles then apologizes Danny for the prank he pulled on her, which is locking her in the closet, by bringing her roses. Side note, I think it's kind of funny she was locked in the closet because she's in the closet. <laughs> Miles apologizes to Danny. He treats her really creepily in a way that you wouldn't expect a kid to act. It was like a grown man. And he's whispering in her ear about Flora being childish and also tucking Danny's hair behind her ear. It turns out that the roses that Miles gives to Danny was from Jamie's garden, and he cut it without Jamie's permission. Then the kids and Danny play hide-and-seek, where Danny wanders into a closed wing of the house and then sees a creepy music box. We then see that Flora's also hiding in the attic and is talking to one of the ghosts, but isn't worried about its existence. They're pretty terrifying, too. The ghosts do not have faces. Their facial features seem to have melted into plain skin. Miles then creeps up behind Danny and starts choking her. So she understandably ends the game of hide and seek. She then sees the man again outside, the man from the parapet, and runs outside to investigate, but then sees Miles collapse back inside the house. This scene is also almost directly like how it was written in the original novella. When Miles wakes up, he also sees the man through the window. In episode 3, The Two Faces Part 1, which is directed by C.R. and Foy and written by Diane Adamuchan, Miles wakes up after passing out from seeing the man in the window, but he seems fine, and the scene almost immediately shifts to a flashback. The rest of the episode follows a format of switching back between present day and this flashback. In the flashback, we learn that the man Danny saw on the parapet and in the window is Peter Quint, an employee of Henry Wingrave, the kid's uncle. Peter Quint helps conduct Rebecca Jessel's job for the interview for her position of au pair. We see in this interview that Rebecca is extremely intelligent and ambitious. Over the course of the flashback, we see Quint and Rebecca talking and flirting once again, most of the flirting is Quint pointing out how overqualified for her job of au pair Rebecca is, at which point she reveals that she got this job to try to get into Henry Wingrave's law firm. We also see in these flashbacks that Quint was very close to Miles. We see Quint and Rebecca begin flirting and decide to spend the night together. After they wake up the next morning, Quint gets increasingly aggressive with her and tries to grab her arm forcefully as she leaves the room, but she brushes him off and decides that it's nothing. Later that day, Quint brings Rebecca to the closed-off wing where the kid's parents used to live and gives her a fur coat. Quint starts taking pictures of her in the fur coat with a Polaroid camera, but Hannah catches them and pointedly tells Rebecca that the children need to be looked after. Hannah then lectures Quint about being in the closed-off wing and threatens to throw him in the lake if she catches him again because Hannah is an icon. That evening, Quint tells Rebecca that he's about to leave for London again and then accuses her of flirting with Owen the cook, which is extremely out of nowhere, and points out that his behavior is both physically and emotionally abusive. In the modern-day parallel story for this episode, all of the adult employees of the house decide to stay the night 
in the house, which only Hannah and Danny usually do, while police investigate and look for Peter Quint. The police are extremely unhelpful and say that no one was on the grounds they did not see Peter Quint. Danny and Jamie continue to grow closer as the two have a very emotional conversation about what they feel like love should look like with Jamie using Quint and Rebecca as a negative example. We also see Hannah begin to get distracted by seeing cracks on ceilings of various rooms. They all look like the same crack, but they're in different physical locations. Danny also picks up a phone call to the manor, but whoever is on the other end hangs up without saying anything, which everyone explains is a very frequent occurrence for the manor. At the end of the episode, Owen learns that his sick mother has passed away. As Owen leaves to tend to his mother, Danny and Jamie are left alone for a moment, and the two flirt and hold hands, but as they're doing so, Danny again sees the figure in mirrors with glasses standing right behind her, which causes her to scream and cry. In episode four, The Wade Came, directed by Liam Gavin and written by Lori Penny, we see that the episode opens with a flashback to Danny as a child with her best friend Edmund. Later on, a flash forward in the flashback, <laughs> we see that Danny is then engaged to Edmund, and at their engagement party, Edmund gives Danny her old wedding dress. But Danny's clearly not very happy about this. We then go back to the present day, where Danny and Jamie are getting ready to go to Owen's mother's funeral, but Danny's hesitant to go. At this moment, Danny also sees the figure in the mirror again. Later on, Danny talks to Flora and tries to calm her down about her parents' death by saying that they're not really gone. But Flora says that they're definitely gone, which is interesting because we know Flora can see ghosts around the house. Hannah also decides to stay back. After the funeral... Everyone, except for Owen, gathers in the kitchen to make dinner for Owen. Hannah clearly cares about Owen very much. Danny sees the figure again in a reflection and is leaving when she thinks she sees Quint, but then that just turns out to be Owen. We then go to another flashback where Danny's trying on wedding dresses, but she's still happy. An interesting shot here is that it lingers on the female shop assistant touching her skin, once again hinting towards Danny being attracted to woman. Back in the present day, we see Flora trying to comfort Owen by telling him that dead doesn't always mean gone. Then Miles suddenly gets angry and demands a glass of wine. And the situation escalates until Danny sends both children to bed. As she's putting Flora to bed, Danny looks over to Flora's dollhouse and Flora tells her to not move any of them. Later on, Danny's walking downstairs and Jamie catches up to her and invites her to a bonfire outside with Owen and Hannah. We then go to a flashback again, where Danny and her fiance Edmund are getting dinner. However, while discussing the size of their wedding, Danny accidentally implies that she doesn't want to marry him at all, which Edmund kind of obviously isn't very happy about it. They then go to their car and as she's trying to de-escalate the situation by saying that she doesn't want to hurt him or hurt his mother, she also accidentally says that she doesn't love him. Edmund is then deeply upset, which is so valid, and doesn't accept her apology. But as he's getting over a car, he's immediately run over and the headlights of the tractor seen in the reflection of his glasses. This then reveals that the figure that Danny's always seeing, the man she sees in the reflections with the glasses, isn't an actual ghost. It's a manifestation of Danny's guilt and grief over Edmund's death. We then go back to the bonfire in the present, and then Jamie says that everyone should discuss someone that they've lost and missed. Hannah talks about Rebecca and the respect she had for her. Jamie talks about the kindness of the children's parents, Lord and Lady Wingrave, and also says that Danny has been good for the children. Danny doesn't talk about anyone. And Owen says that he's sad about his mother, but that she was gone long before she died, as she had dementia or some similar disease. We then go to another flashback where Danny is at the hospital and Edmund is dead. This is where she sees his figure in the mirror for the first time. At his funeral, she's standing across a mirror again, and she sees his reflection standing behind her. 
She covers the mirror in front of everyone and accidentally creates a little bit of a scene. We then go back to the present, where Danny and Jamie walk away from the bonfire to the greenhouses. And Danny tells Jamie that she sees her dead fiancé in mirrors. Jamie jokes that she'll protect Danny, and then the two kiss. (laughs) It is such a cute scene. It's adorable. However... The ghost appears during their kiss, and Danny jumps. What a cock blocker, dog. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that is the point of this ghost. It is a literal representation of Danny not being able to move. Jamie on. then seems very offended, and she walks away. We then see Flora in her room, looking at her dollhouse. She then tells Miles that she's worried for Danny. The two then leave their room, and talk to Danny and start demanding random various things. In the background, the audience sees that there's a figure that's walking through. Once the figures walked away, the kids then allow Danny to leave. In the final shot of this episode, we see that Danny's walking back to the bonfire and she finally throws away Edmund's glasses into the blaze while his figure watches her. In episode 5, The Altar of the Dead, directed by Liam Gavin and written by Angela Lamana, the plot of this episode is very convoluted as it deals with Hannah being stuck in various time loops. The episode opens with Owen and Hannah talking in the same amount of time in which Danny and Jamie were kissing in the greenhouse the previous episode. The two talk about death, and Owen admits to feeling relieved that his mother had passed away after her extended illness, although he says he feels terrible for saying that. Owen says that he might return to Paris, which was where he was studying before his mother had gotten sick, and he invites Hannah to come with him, at which point Jamie returns, having just stormed away from Danny. Then, seemingly in a flashback, Hannah is interviewing Owen for the position of chef at Bly Manor. Later, the scene seems to shift after Hannah hears someone call for her, and the Wingraves, still alive at this point during the flashback, arrive for their usual summer stay, along with much younger Miles and Flora. The scene shifts a third time, still in a seemingly confused manner, and Hannah begins sobbing for unexplained reasons. Lady Charlotte Wingrave, the kid's mother, walks outside and gives enough context clues for the audience to realize that Hannah's husband has just left her, and the scene makes it clear that Charlotte is a very kind and caring person and that she and Hannah were very close friends. Back in the present, Hannah sees Miles mess with the ladder Jamie is standing on and Jamie is reasonably upset about this. Then we see the scene shift back to Hannah talking with Owen at the bonfire about moving to Paris. After another sudden scene shift, Hannah eavesdrops on Quint and Rebecca making up after an argument when Quint accused her of flirting with Owen once again for literally no reason. She sees the same crack in the wall that she keeps seeing over and over, and the scene shifts again to when she caught Peter Quint stealing Lady Wingrave's jewels. Quint threatens to get Henry Wingrave to fire her, but she makes it clear that she will have him fired first. Then the crack in the wall reappears, and she sees Rebecca standing next to the lake. The scene shifts back to the same interview with Owen, but the dialogue is different this time, and she asks if they've done this before. Owen admits that they have, but they need to do it again. The scene abruptly shifts to when Hannah caught Miles smoking a cigarette, which is something that Peter Quint often did. Hannah tells Miles that she knows he misses Quint, but that he can't smoke, as he is eight. The scene shifts back to Hannah and Lady Charlotte talking in the church, but then Lady Charlotte turns into Rebecca as she confides in Hannah that she likes Quint because he believes in her more than her father did, but Hannah warns Rebecca against Quint. The scene shifts to another time when Hannah saw Miles smoking, then back to Hannah and Owen talking in the kitchen, then about once again warning Rebecca. After these continuing scene shifts, we see in a scene that Peter was killed by the Lady of the Lake as he was trying to steal Lady Charlotte's jewels, but only the kids and Rebecca saw him die, and police still think he is just missing. We eventually see 
Hannah having a conversation with Miles where he is obviously talking and acting like Quint and saying that he has been trapped on this property. Then Miles, apparently possessed by Peter Quint, pushes Hannah down the well, and on the well wall is the crack that Hannah sees everywhere. Hannah sees the view down the well of her dead body, but is distracted by Danny arriving at the manor for the first time, having just been hired as the au pair. This scene fully reveals that Hannah was killed moments before Danny's arrival and has been dead the entire series, except for during a few flashbacks. This scene shifts a last time to the same conversation the episode started with, where Hannah and Owen were talking at the bonfire, and Owen was inviting her to come to Paris with him. We now know that, assuming Quint was right about not being able to leave the grounds as a ghost, Hannah going to Paris would be impossible. As Owen and Jamie leave the bonfire, Hannah begins repeating her name. In episode 6, The Jolly Corner direct Yolanda Ramke and Ben Howling, and written by Rebecca Leigh Klingle, we first see Henry Wingrave in his office late at night, where he's drinking and reading a letter, and then male shadowy figures also watching him while he does so. This shadowy figure then steps forward, and then we see that it's just a version of... We then go to a flashback to Lord Wingrave running into the manor and apologizing to his wife, Lady Charlotte, for being late for her going into labor, but Henry was already there and tries to calm Dominic down. We then go back to the present day, where Danny brings Jamie coffee in the greenhouse, where she mentions that sometimes Hannah seems to be just gone. Danny apologizes to Jamie and says that she doesn't like how they left it that night, and Jamie accepts the apology. They then plan to get a date. The two then see Flora wandering around the grounds. A hand touches Flora, and she wakes up to see a faceless boy under her bed. She runs to her mother for comfort, and she sees her uncle Henry getting dressed in her mother's room, revealing, gasp, that Charlotte and Henry were having an affair. Charlotte calms Flora down, but also says that Flora's inside a memory right now. We then see that Flora's waking up to see Danny comforting her. We then go back to Henry and his other self. Henry then remembers a time when he called the manor to check on Flora, but Dominic Here's Flora talking on the phone, and she tells him that her uncle Henry was on the phone. Dominic asks Henry why he was calling, forcing Henry to come up with a lie about needing to talk about business. Back in the present day, we see that Henry's other self is mocking Henry. Danny and Jamie walk through the woods, and Jamie shows Danny a moonflower she planted. Jamie then tells Danny about her childhood trauma. Yeah, she has a lot of childhood trauma because she's a character in a Mike Flanagan show. Mm-hmm. After talking about her childhood trauma, Jamie says that, like the moonflower, some things are worth putting in a lot of effort for, and Danny kisses her. We then go to another flashback. So many flashbacks in this. Henry brings Flora the massive dollhouse replica of Bly Manor that we see that she uses frequently throughout the series. Henry then tells Dominic that he'll miss Flora's actual party and apologizes. After which, Dominic confronts Charlotte and tells her that he knows Flora is Henry's child, since Flora was born several months early, but was still a large baby, and Dominic was traveling for work. Neither Dominic nor Charlotte seem to be very angry, which is surprising. Instead, they both cry and hug each other, and Dominic says that Charlotte must have been really lonely since he travels so much. Back in the present, we see that Danny and Jamie wake up having spent the night together, and once again, Danny sees Flora wandering outside. When she goes to get her, Flora doesn't know where she is, but then claims that she was just on a walk. We then go back to Henry, where Danny once again tries to inform Henry about Flora's odd behavior. Henry remembers how Dominic had confronted him about Flora being his daughter and banished him from Bly Manor, saying that he no longer had a brother. Back in the present, Henry calls to the manor but hangs up without saying anything, because someone other than Flora answered, which reveals that Henry's the one who keeps calling the manor. In the past, we then go to when Henry first found out that Charlotte and Dominic have died, and while he's remembering these calls, his other self continues to mock him. He tries to call the manor again, which doesn't go through, so then he decides to visit the manor. We then go back to Flora, and she sees the faceless boy again. But, based on her mother's advice, she talks to him and befriends the faceless boy. 
This allows the audience to realize that the faceless boy is the one who's moving the dolls around in the dollhouse, indicating where all of the ghosts are in the house right now. This explains why the children know when the lady in the lake is going to walk around the house. Flora realizes that she's reliving a memory which she's unhappy about. She sees Rebecca sitting on her bed and complains to Rebecca being tucked away in memories, but also says that Miles has been acting very strange. Danny walks in and sees Rebecca, which is weird because Rebecca's supposed to be dead, and she's shocked. Peter Quint also walks into the room and the two vanish. Danny then chases Flora into the attic where Flora apologizes to her, but Miles hits her on the back of her head and she passes out. In episode 7, The Two Faces Part 2, directed by Yolanda Ramke and Ben Howling, and written by the Clarkson twins, we open with Danny having been tied up by Peter Quint and Rebecca, and they're all discussing what to do with her, using terms like dream hopping. Rebecca starts to slip away as we realize that ghosts have trouble concentrating on being in one specific place, just like Hannah did in episode 5. We learn through Quint also getting distracted by a previous memory that Peter Quint and Hannah were yeah that Peter Quint was in an argument with his mother who threatens to get Quint fired by showing Henry Wingrave that he had a juvenile record unless Peter Quint was able to give his mother money which he did not have any of. Then it switches to one of Rebecca's memories of being questioned by the police after Quint was killed, although no one knew he'd been killed except the kids. Later, Rebecca is treated kindly by the other employees of the house, but is clearly distraught over Peter's death. That night, Quint appears to Rebecca, who is mad that he stole from the manor and left her, but Quint explains that he was a ghost. <laughs> Rebecca takes a while to believe him, but eventually is forced to acknowledge that he's dead. Quint appears and tells Rebecca that he can't go beyond the edge of the manor property, and Rebecca is upset that she can't touch him. So Quint possesses Rebecca and tries to cross the border of the manor's property in her body, but she cannot cross the border either when she's possessed. After a week, Quint tells Rebecca that he's found a solution and that the possession just didn't work because she hadn't fully accepted his possession. He possesses her again, and she relives the memory of trying on the fur coat with Peter. But Quint, while possessing her, walks slowly into the lake and sees the body of the lady in the lake at the bottom. In the memory, she sees water begin to fill the room that she's in, but is unable to escape the memory. We then see the ghost of Rebecca standing by the side of the lake and cries, seeing her own dead body floating on the lake, as Peter Quint had essentially... Flora is the first to discover the situation and stares blankly until Jamie sees what has happened and carries Flora away. The memory of Rebecca trying on the fur coat restarts, but Rebecca is angry this time and argues with Quint, saying that he left her to drown alone after the water entered her lungs. Quint says that he had to drown her so that they could be together, and promises that there's a way out of the situation, but keeps getting drawn away from Rebecca by hearing the sounds of previous memories. Quint and Rebecca tell the kids that they need to kill Danny so that everyone there can go to the Forever House where they will all be saved. Rebecca is protesting against Quint's plan, but Quint shows Rebecca one of the faceless ghosts in the manor and explains that this is what happens to ghosts who remain in Bly Manor so long that they've forgotten who they are. Rebecca and Quint possess Flora and Miles and agree that they need to deal with Danny soon. Miles, possessed by Quint, takes a walk with Hannah and tells her to look down the well where she sees her dead body. Flora possessed by Rebecca unties Danny and then Rebecca stops possessing Flora and explains that she had previously told Flora to pretend to cooperate with Quint but neither of them had any real intention of doing so. Rebecca tells Danny that it's too late for Miles but that she should take Flora off the property. Danny picks up Flora and flees but just then the lady in the lake comes up behind Danny and grabs her by the neck beginning to strangle her just like she did to Peter Quint. In episode 8, The Romance of Certain Old Clothes, directed by Axel Carolyn and written by Leah Fong, we once again see Danny being grabbed by the lady in the lake and Flora screaming. 
But soon the shot switches to sepia tones and we realize that we are in a flashback. We see two sisters named Viola and Perdita and it is shown that their father, who owned Bly Manor, has passed away. One of the sisters needs to get married so the property stays in their family. To do so, they invite over a distant cousin named Arthur Lloyd. And after his interest in Viola, the soon two get married. The two soon get married. Although she sees her marriage as a business move, Viola does slowly fall for Arthur and they have a daughter named Isabel. Then, Viola begins to cough and a doctor in a plague mask tells her and Arthur that she only has a few months to live. This scene has plague masks and coughing up blood. We're really getting through the horror trips here. Viola's health continues to worsen, but through sheer stubbornness and force of will, she's still alive after many, many years. Isabel's now an older child and asks Arthur and Perdita to show her a dance. They comply, but then Viola shows up and demands to talk to her daughter. Viola then throws up, slaps Perdita for dancing with her husband, and demands that Perdita take her to bed. We then see that Viola wanders around the house at night. When Perdita doesn't allow Viola to sleep in the same room as her daughter, Viola tells Perdita that she's taken over as the Lady of the Manor and accuses her of scheming to take over Viola's place. Viola owns an expensive and extensive collection of clothes and jewelry, which she then locks in a trunk and asks Arthur to give only to Isabel. We then later see that Perdita finally loses her patience with Viola and then chokes her. After Viola dies, Arthur and Perdita get married, but Isabel doesn't see Perdita as a mother figure. When Arthur's business starts to lose money, Perdita suggests that they sell Viola's jewelry and dresses. However, Arthur says that he made a promise to Viola to only give it to Isabel. However, that night, Perdita unlocks the trunk and Viola jumps out of the trunk and strangles Perdita. We then go back to Viola after her death where she finds herself locked in a very nice bedroom containing all of her dresses and jewelry, and she follows a routine of sleeping, waking up, and walking. She accepts that she's dead, but she's looking forward to finally seeing her daughter Isabel opening the trunk. However, when Perdita is the first one to open the trunk, she's so enraged that she strangles her. After Perdita's death, Arthur and Isabel both live by manor. Arthur is superstitious and thinks that the chest of clothes is cursed, so he throws it into the lake. After Viola, essentially being abandoned by Arthur, is tossed in the lake, she starts her tradition of walking around the manor once again. She takes the same walk to her old bedroom from before she was ill, hoping one day to see her daughter in bed. However, whenever someone else is in the manor, she kills him. And every time she wakes up, she remembers less and less, until her face vanishes completely. She becomes a force of only loneliness and rage. We then go back to the shot of Danny being grabbed by the woman, who we now know is Viola. In the final episode, episode 9, The Beast in the Jungle, directed by E.L. Katz and written by Julia Bicknell, we once again see Hannah in her memory of interviewing Owen. Hannah finally admits that she's dead, but says she still wants to help the others. So Owen encourages her to do her best and go save her friends. Hannah runs out and tells Viola to let go of Danny, but since she's a ghost, Viola just walks through her. Viola drags Danny on her usual route through the house and into her old bedroom, which is now the deceased Wingrave's bedroom. Flora jumps on the bed in front of Viola and begs her to drop Danny, and Viola is reminded of her daughter. Viola does drop Danny and grabs Flora instead, thinking that she is Isabel. At this moment, Henry arrives at the manor and sees Viola dragging Flora towards the lake. Henry tries to stop her, but is thrown to the side and knocked unconscious. Jamie and Owen drive up to the house, and Hannah tells them to run to the lake where the other characters are in danger. Rebecca follows Viola and Flora and offers to possess Flora so that she won't be conscious during her own death if she drowns, and Flora agrees. Danny runs into the lake in front of Viola and asks Viola to possess her, and Viola agrees, letting go of Flora. Owen arrives at the lake and helps Henry, who is badly injured. 
Quint stops possessing Miles and apologizes to him as all the ghosts seem to fade since Viola has possessed Danny. Danny hugs Flora and Jamie soon arrives. Owen notices that Hannah is missing and the next day, Hannah's body is found and brought up from the well. Later, Jamie senses that Danny is still upset and Danny explains that she can feel Viola inside her just waiting to kill her. Jamie agrees to stay with her until her death, which the two seem to think will be very soon. As the group splits up, Danny and Jamie leave Bly together, and Henry begins to take care of his niece and nephew himself. A montage shows Danny and Jamie living together for five years. Danny occasionally sees Viola in reflections, but always shakes it off, and eventually Danny proposes to Jamie. After they're engaged, Danny and Jamie go to visit Owen, who has opened his own restaurant, which was his dream. He mentions that Henry and the kids visited him recently, but says that the kids remember nothing of their time at Bly other than that they stayed there. The next day, Jamie arrives home with the paperwork making their civil union official, but she sees that the bathtub is flooded and that Danny is staring blankly at it. Danny tells Jamie that she feels tired and finds it hard to see herself. Jamie comforts her and tells her to fight against Viola. That night, Danny wakes up and finds her hands wrapped around Jamie's throat, which is the final straw for her. And the next morning, Jamie sees a note from Danny saying that she couldn't risk harming her. Jamie drives to Bly Manor and jumps into the lake where she sees Danny's body underwater where Viola's body used to be. Jamie begs Danny to take her too, like Viola would have, but the lady in the lake is now Danny, and Danny would never kill anyone. The scene shifts back to the wedding rehearsal dinner framing device from episode one, and it's revealed that the storyteller was an older Jamie. The wedding guests ask her if the story is true, and she answers vaguely. Everyone except the bride goes to bed, but the bride stays to tell Jamie that she thinks Jamie set up the story wrong by saying it was a ghost story when it was really a love story. The bride then cries because she is worried she will lose her soon-to-be husband like Jamie lost Danny. But Jamie comforts her, and by this point, it is clear that the bride is a grown-up Flora. The scene goes to the wedding the next day, and Jamie sees Miles, Henry, and Owen at the wedding event, as well as Flora. After the wedding, Jamie returns to her hotel room, where she fills her sink and bathtub all the way up and stares into them, hoping to see Danny. As she falls asleep, a hand rests on her shoulder, implying that Danny is still watching over her. We hope this summary was more entertaining than the Wikipedia version. Tune in after a quick break to hear us analyze this TV show and talk about the queer representation in it. Hi, this is Elizabeth Crane just chiming in to say please rate our podcast five stars and leave a written review if you have a spare second. This is the metric that a lot of podcast apps use to track which podcasts are being listened to a lot. So we would really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thank you. Welcome back from the break. Now for the analysis section. So obviously, unlike our previous episode, this TV series does actually have canonically queer characters. Our two main characters are lesbians that are very well written. They're good people, so they're not queer-coded villains. They're in a very healthy relationship that nothing really goes horribly wrong in. And I, for one, am very happy about this. (laughs) I love these characters so much. I think part of what contributes to them being such well-written characters is that all episodes except for the first two are written by women, and a few of the episodes are even directed by women. I agree. I think it's, like, so cute. Obviously, always here for queer characters. And I think when I first watched it, watched it blind like honestly I had watched Hill House and I really enjoyed it so I was like ah let me watch Bly Manor so I really wasn't expecting to see any representation so I was like I was very happy when I saw them on screen I think I like texted my friend I was like oh my god but yes I totally agree about how the representation was also probably better because many of the episodes were in by women because the perspective that they put the characters in it was just pretty different from what we usually see in media. I agree. I don't necessarily think that all women's writing is going to be great, but the likelihood of a female character being well-rounded definitely goes up when you have a female writer. 
Another thing that I think contributes to this portrayal of this lesbian relationship is that when Mike Flanagan was first creating his idea for the show, he intended Jamie to be played by Oliver Jackson Cohen, who ended up playing Peter Quint. However, he changed his mind because the two actors played twins in The Haunting of Hill House, so he thought audiences might find it odd, which is probably true. This could explain why no part of Danny and Jamie's romance particularly fits into common lesbian tropes or feels like it wouldn't also be written for a straight couple. There's very, very few lines of dialogue in the show that actually address that these two characters are queer. Most of it is more about Danny overcoming her trauma from her previous boyfriend having died. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, because there isn't like any coming out scene or like I don't really remember seeing any homophobia or anything expressed. I did think it was refreshing because it's like the whole point characters wasn't that they were just queer. It's that there were so many other things happening and there were more than just their sexual identity. I absolutely agree. I thought it was super refreshing. I love seeing characters like this that are allowed to have their own arcs that aren't something like coming out, which of course it's important to have coming out stories, but that shouldn't be the only roles that queer characters are ever shown in. And I thought these two characters have their own stories and their own plot and backgrounds going on, and then being queer is just one element of it. However, I do feel like a potential downside to this representation is that it definitely falls into the barrier gaze trope, which is a trope in which a character is killed often as a result of the queer relationship that they're in, or it seems to be unnecessary to the plot and the writer just added it in in order to avoid having to portray queer characters in the future. This doesn't perfectly fit that theme and as we know it probably wasn't written for queer characters because it was originally a straight couple. However, the fact that so much media overwhelmingly shows lesbian couples never getting to be happy, this really just added another one into this pool. I could probably count on one hand the number of plots where a lesbian couple actually ends up together at the end, and they're not forcibly separated or neither of them are killed. And unfortunately, they're definitely separated in this. And I was very upset about this the first time I watched it. The montage is so cute, and you're definitely rooting for their relationship. And then it's all just ripped away from you. I totally agree. The ending devastated me. And even though we see that Danny's still there with her, for me personally, it was more of a somber ending. Yeah, I don't think that's that's personal. personal. I think it's just a really depressing ending. It's so depressing. (laughs) I cried many times when I watched this. And then I watched it a second time for this podcast. And I was like, I know how it ends. I'm not going to cry. And then I cried again. (laughs) That's so valid. I... I think I cried the first time I watched it. I've seen this now, I think, three times. And the second time, it was like, oh, I was expecting it. But it was still, like, this deep sadness, you know? I totally agree with you on how we never really get to see happy couples for lesbian characters or queer characters in many of the media we see. And I feel like there's always this underlying thing, like, oh, it's never going to completely work out. Which isn't the best (laughs) it isn't the happiest it's just very disheartening Mm -hmm. so yeah i don't think this was meant to be the barrier gaze trope i don't think it's particularly harmful as far as like representation goes it's very well done overall but i do think you have to take into account the cultural context surrounding the show which is that lesbian couples are never happy and this adds to that unfortunately Mm -hmm. but i do still love these characters and think they're very well written Mm mm-hmm They're real fun. (laughs) They're so cute. Another topic I wanted to touch on was how this compares to the original Henry James novella that it's adapting. I did read the book recently. I enjoyed it, but it definitely departs from the book pretty significantly. I would say the first two or three episodes are actually extremely close to the book, way closer than I expected, especially having both read the Shirley Jackson Haunting of Hill House and watch the TV show, I was expecting it to not be similar at all. But the first two or three episodes, very similar. 
But anything having to do with the ghosts, aside from Peter Clint, was not in the book. So by the time you get to episode four or five, the episodes basically have nothing to do with the Henry James novella. The novella is also interesting because it relies upon the question of whether there are actual ghosts or if the kids are trying to drive the governess out of her position. And I say the governess because this character of Danny in the show has no name in the book, but we see that in the novella there's a very real possibility that these kids are gaslighting her and they're basically trying to get rid of her. And we also get some interesting hints in the novella that the main character, who is not named Danny, uh, may have been motivated to take this position because she found Henry Wingrave attractive and was trying to impress him. And I found this sort of interesting because there is not a lot of plot in this book, so one of the few plot threads we do get is not carried over into the show. But honestly, I think that was for the best. I love Jamie. I'm trying to imagine the show with, like, an added plot of, like, Danny being attracted to Henry. And I don't like it. I don't don't like it at all. I don't like it. I think it works in the book, and it should be left in the book. Sometimes adaptations don't need to be 100% accurate to the book. And it's okay. Also, the narrator, who in the TV show is the older version of Jamie at Flora's wedding, was an unnamed and generic man in the book, whose only job was to be like, would you like to hear a ghost story? And all the wedding guests were like, absolutely. (laughs) So they changed who the narrator was in order to tie it more into the overall plot, which is a great touch. I always love that that's the framing device we get. I think it's really emotional and resonates well with the overall plot. No, I 100% agree. It also just makes it so much more personal at the end when you realize that Jamie is the older woman and that Flora is the bride and like everyone else is there. It really just adds a personal touch. I agree. Also, the last thing I want to touch on with the Henry James novella is that it actually ends with Miles dying after either the shock from seeing Quint's ghost at the window, like he does at the end of episode two, or he dies from the unnamed governess accidentally shaking him so hard that he dies during a confrontation between them, where she is trying to figure out if he is lying to her about not seeing a ghost. So it's never established if Miles actually sees Quint. But that is how the book ends. Hmm. That's that's an interesting ending. It's like such a cliffhanger because you're like, damn, what's going to happen to the governess after that? Like, Oh, did she just commit murder? Possibly. Damn. That's interesting. That's interesting. I keep trying to like... Every time you say something about the book, I keep trying to put that in the TV show, and I'm like, this does not work. Yeah, Yeah. definitely Definitely once you are thinking about things in the context of the show, you're like, oh god, what is that? (laughs) It's its own thing. Also, we need to talk about the usage of the creepy kids. If we were to do a bingo, creepy kids would be the free space. They were even Crimson Peak at the beginning. And there, and, were and no there aren't even creepy kids. kids. Exactly. exactly. There was Tom Hiddleston's butt crack, though, so I don't know what's creepier. <laughs> you were really, truly upset by that, and I love that. <laughs> so in the novella, which is called The Turn of the Screw, the fact that there are creepy kids is what causes the narrator to say, That's really an extra turn of the screw. So that's where the whole title comes from. And I actually really like these creepy kids because a lot of times the kids in horror movies are just, like, the worst. Like, I don't mean to be, like, rude, but they are trying to cause problems. I feel like they're the usual twins dressed with pigtails and frilly dresses and they're standing at the end of your hotel hallway room and they're like... Do you want to come play? And you're like, dog, no, leave me alone, Absolutely please. Absolutely not. I do not want to play. <laughs> but yeah, Flora is a normal child, very lovable. She is 
really trying to help Danny. She's absolutely splendid. <laughs> yeah. She's a lovely character. Miles, on the other hand, absolutely not. He's much closer to your typical horror movie child. But how much of that is Miles and how much of that is Quint? Right. I mean, that's the point. Like, he's creepy when he's possessed by Quint, and that's on purpose. Also, something I really liked about this is that it was more of a romance or character-based drama than, like, a traditional horror movie that we see. Just, like, to connect back to Crimson Peak once again, I think it's real fun how they say that the story in Bly Manor is a love story, not a ghost story. And this is, this really reminded me of how in, back in Crimson Peak, Edith said that this isn't a ghost story. It's a story with ghosts in it. So this just goes to show, like, although a story may have ghosts in it, there's more to it than that. I agree, and I really enjoyed this, but I do think that it gives it a very different tone than something like Mike Flanagan's The Haunting of Hill House, which, if you look at it on paper, has a very similar plot, but the tones are extremely different, Mm -hmm. and I think that's mostly because this is more of a romance or character-based drama than The Haunting of Hill House. I also think maybe the reason Mike Flanagan chose to go this direction is because in the Henry James novella, there is not even definitively ghosts in it. That's sort of the point of the story. So I think there's just less of that horror influence in the base story and what he was creating these characters from. But more similar to Mike Flanagan's The Haunting of Hill House, many scenes feature ghosts hidden in the background of certain shots, which truly nothing freaks me out more if you put a face in the background of a shot i'm gonna scream like why is it there so valid i remember the first time i watched it i think the only one i really noticed was like the one from when flora's doll is like tossed down into the i was gonna say attic i'm like no that's a basement basement. (laughs) yeah When the dolls toss down into the basement and then we see like one of the dolls' head turn to look at Danny. But then after usually after anything I watch, I will go and I'll watch YouTube videos and deep dives on them. So I have watched many a video that are just showing all of the different ghost scenes in Bly Manor and there's so many. There are. I definitely only noticed a couple the first time I watched it. This time I was looking for them because I knew that they were in the haunting of Hill House. And I was like, this man is going to try to scare me with these faces. But I still miss them. Mm -hmm. It's really well done. It's so cool. It's so cool. It's so fun. I just I just love it when anything has like an Easter egg. Also, linking back to Hill House and speaking of Easter eggs, there are a few references scattered throughout, such as when Peter Quint references having a forever home, which is the term that the mother used in The Haunting of Hill House when she was describing where she wanted to live after they moved out of Hill House. Also, the soundtrack of the show was so enjoyable. I especially appreciate the theme that plays over the opening credits. And the opening credits in general are just so cool and atmospheric with the portraits with the faces slowly disappearing so all the characters start looking like the ghosts. That was so cool. I loved the opening so much. It was just so artistic and it was so creative. Um, It was was like the right kind of creepy. Mm Mm-hmm. I agree. Also, the piano line in the soundtrack is directly from the Haunting of Hill House soundtrack, and it's very recognizable, which makes the anthology feel more connected, which I appreciated because it is an anthology and there's not a ton of connection between them, so I thought that was helpful. One thing that I didn't realize until, like, later was that Hannah's earrings also reveal like this is the easter eggs again I love easter eggs it's so fun and um I didn't realize this until much later but you see how Hannah's earrings change when she's dead and alive um from when she's alive it's a lot more um like large and like bigger like you see them and then when she's dead they're kind of like small hoops and I just I just thought that's like so interesting and so fun and so Like, it's just so cute. I love it. Yeah, and speaking of cool Easter eggs, actually the reason why Danny's last name is Clayton is because that is the last name of Jack Clayton, who is the director of The Innocents, which is a film adaptation of the same original Henry James novella. 
it is a really, really famous adaptation, but we don't really have time to get into it on this episode. But I would recommend it's creepy. It's in black and white. It's got a lady wandering around with a candelabra. We love to see it. This is also like totally different, but another little Easter egg I love is how there's like a whole Zillow listing for the Bly Manor. It's like so cute. Like there's an actual Zillow like listing and um, it's like it was a campaign for the show when it was coming out. But like when you go through it, they're like you can see the ghosts and you can see all of the other like tiny Easter eggs in it. I just think that's real cute. Another thing I wanted to talk about is the set. This house is so gorgeous, but I don't think it reads quite as haunted as a lot of haunted mansions and horror movies do, especially the exterior. It looks very welcoming. I wouldn't look at this house and be like, oh, haunted. Bly Manor, you know, it has a nice little garden, nice little church. It looks real cute. I'd go in. I'd go in Zillow. I'd be like, yes, I'm gonna buy this house. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't have the money, but I'd Me be neither. like, wow, I would buy it if I was rich. Yeah. And like a lot of the tones are warmer and it just doesn't inspire foreboding. I'm like, that's a normal home. Yeah. And I guess I feel like that also just plays into how the tone of Bly Manor is just so different from Hill House, you know, because like it, it's scary. It's just more of a love story than a horror story, in my opinion. I agree. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Also, something that's real fun is that one of the ghosts that are shown in the show in the background is a soldier. And in episode six, um, Henry mentions that when he was younger and visited and lived in the manor, he had an imaginary friend who was a soldier. Um Although we never see him, he's in the background of many shots. If you if you do one of if you do your own deep dive and look ghost Learn and by manner <laughs> you'll see him around. Um and it's just once again a little interesting tidbit, a little interesting Easter egg. I just love how everything in the show is connected in some way or the other. It just shows the writers and directors and like the whole gang's <laughs> um, attention to detail when making this series. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we had so much trouble cutting the summary down to a reasonable length because everything is so connected that if we left out one detail, suddenly we couldn't explain the plot to you at all because we left out like a crucial detail. So it really goes to show how much care was put into making sure this plot was fully thought out. Also, it's worth noting that after Viola possesses Danny in the last couple episodes, one of Danny's eyes changes color to a darker brown than her normal blue eyes. So that's how you can tell when the ghost is sort of present and quietly threatening Danny. Okay, thanks for listening to our analysis. Now we're going to rate this TV show on a scale of both how much we enjoyed it and how queer we thought it was. So in terms of how good we thought this was, personally, I would give it like an 8 out of 10. It does hold a dear place in my heart, but personally, I always am going to go for a more action-adventure, more fantasy more action-packed thing over something more slow and romantic like this. So for that reason, I would give it an 8 out of 10 instead of, you know, like a 9 or a 10. But I still love it very, very much, and I can see this easily being a 10 out of a 10 to someone else. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. Me, personally, I like the the slowness of it, so 9 out of 10. In terms of queer representation, I would give this a 9 out of 10. I think it is pretty much perfect in terms of having an actual lesbian couple that is well written and not villainized and they have a good relationship but they do die at the end which makes me very upset especially in terms of larger cultural issues like the barrier gaze trope yeah i was gonna say an eight out of ten for this one so i guess our ratings are just switched switch them around (laughs) um Uh, But no, I totally agree with your points. Um, It's very queer, very gay. I love how it was a healthy relationship. So rare. They have good communication. They're emotionally open. I love it. So So fun. 
So why would you give it an 8 out of 10 and not a 9 out of 10? Because I think everything can always be more queer. (laughs) That's so fair. I mean, I guess there aren't really any other queer characters besides the main ones. Like, it's just those two and, like... We all know that gay people run in packs. This is unrealistic. Exactly. Queer people attract other queer people. Like, (laughs) um, like, I think you can always make it more queer. Like, I think by themselves as a character, 9 out of 10, the only bad part being, not the bad part, but like, sad part, I guess, being the end. But overall, I think that there's always a possibility to include more queer representation um, in ways that aren't just like queer representation that isn't just like white queer representation too that's really fair there's a lot of people of color in supporting roles but these two romantic leads are both white Mm -hmm. and i know there's a huge lack in representation for women of color as queer characters Thanks for listening to our episode. We really hope you enjoyed our analysis of The Haunting of Bly Manor, one of our favorite lesbian ghost stories. But we sure do have a treat for you next week when we discuss more lesbians that might also have ghosts. You never know. And one of those ghosts might be named Rebecca, also possible, and the narrator remains unnamed. Thanks for tuning in. Come back next week. Queer by Candlelight is a podcast hosted, created, and edited by Elizabeth Crane and Dahlia Kumar. Cover art by Dahlia Kumar. Music by Elizabeth Crane. Music recorded by Elizabeth Crane and Ryan Allegretti. With special thanks to Carlos Myers for help with music composition. Mm-hmm.